I was trying to absorb the fact that my apartment was destroyed and I was essentially homeless. At some point, I was on my knees and said, <clears throat> I'm not going to let this break me. lunchtime on February the 22nd, 2011, the world turned upside down for the people of Christchurch. It was a Tuesday, just like any other weekday, in the city that prided itself on being New Zealand's most stately. Modelled on good old-fashioned British tradition, the urban centre was built around a square dominated by a beautiful stone cathedral. Nearby, the sedate Avon River wound its way past historic buildings and parklands. A lot of the buildings were made from stone and seemed like they'd be there for eternity. But just before one o'clock in the afternoon, five kilometres underground, the earth moved. It was like a giant dragon, or maybe a tanifar, had flicked its tail, throwing everything on top of it into chaos. For ten terrifying seconds, the city shook, decimating buildings, killing 185 people and injuring thousands more. Seven years later, the city is still in the process of being rebuilt and everybody who was there that day has a story to tell. Many of those stories are deep and heartbreaking and will continue to make ripples for lifetimes to come. This is not one of those stories. Dennis Gallagher has a very different earthquake story to tell, a story that up until a year ago he'd never told publicly out of respect for the police, the army and the many emergency services who worked day and night to pull survivors from the rubble, and not least out of respect for those who were maimed and the families of those who lost their lives. Dennis's story is a tale about a man who loves his books and the lengths he will go to to save them from oblivion. I'm Megan McChesney and this is The Lip. here. There's computer books, there's science fiction books, and then around here on this shelf, this is all pretty much environmental things. This is Dennis Gallagher, and as you can tell, he's passionate about his books. Unlike most people, I, I'm not afraid to mark up my books. When I buy a book, I write my name and the date that I acquired it, typically in the front. And if I'm reading it and I'm quite interested in it, I will underline things all the way through it. If they're especially poignant to me, I'll go into the very front cover page and I'll write down all the page numbers. I'll loan them out and get them back and loan them out and get them back. I even keep records of who, who I've loaned what because otherwise I forget and I never see the book again and I have to go buy it again the next time I find it. You know, they're, they're part of your life. My books to me are the same thing that a lot of people do with their photograph albums. They're a way to remember a lot of significant events in your life. A lot of them are very special to me and I really mourn if I lose them, but 
to lose them all at once. Well, that's a little bit like losing your most your box of your most personal papers or your photograph albums of your family going back to the beginning of time. Dennis was originally from the United States, born in New York City, grew up in Southern California. Most of my career has been in high tech as computer programmer. He came to live in New Zealand in 2009 after falling in love with the place during a visit a few years earlier. Rented a camper van, drove all around the North Island, and by the time that two weeks was over, I was completely gobsmacked. I loved the place. It just seemed smaller, slower paced, more innocent. Everything seemed to be 20 or 30 years behind where it had advanced to in the United States. And I just thought, let's move there. I mean, I was married at the time, and uh, my then wife was reticent, but she finally agreed. But by the time it actually came around to moving, she was over it, and I decided to go, and she decided to stay. So I ended up coming down here by myself. He settled in Christchurch and bought an apartment. It was next to Hagley Park, five floors up. It faced directly west, so I could look straight off into this 800-acre park. It was just an ideal location. You could walk in a matter of minutes to downtown. Had security, it was new, the people in it were friendly, there was a tennis court, uh, it was just a great place to find yourself. Dennis was 62, and before making the move, he came to terms with the fact he would be leaving behind most of the stuff he'd accumulated over a lifetime, except for what would fit on one standard-sized shipping pallet. It meant getting rid of a lot of stuff, but as you might guess, not his books. Around 300 of them went on the pallet that was shipped 11,000 kilometers across the Pacific Ocean. I found out in an amazing way that all the stuff we accumulate and drag around with us or stack up around us isn't all that necessary to your, your happiness. I mean, there are some things that I treasure because of emotional value to them, and my books would have fallen into that category. Within a short space of time, Dennis had a job with a web development company and had even met a woman called Colette on the dating site, Find Someone. There hadn't been discussions of us moving in together or anything. It was just like, we're getting along quite well and this is a nice relationship. On January the 22nd, 2011, he'd been living in Christchurch just 14 months when the big one hit. A friend of mine from the US was visiting and I had taken a day off to basically guide him out onto the highway so he could take off south out of Christchurch, and I was coming back from that mission on my motorcycle when all hell broke loose. I was riding down Rickerton Avenue, which is one of the bigger streets here in Christchurch, and I just had the feeling that that both tires on my motorcycle had gone flat. I mean, I couldn't figure out why my motorcycle was acting the way it was. It was completely bizarre. It was a struggle to keep it vertical and not just to fall over. And I thought, somehow I've gotten two flat tires at once, and I did everything I could to pull it to the side of the road without crashing. And I did, and I looked up, and people were beginning to pour out of buildings, and cars were stopping around me, and I thought, what the hell is this? And then I realized it was an earthquake. And I looked, and the buildings around me weren't really damaged badly. It was just everybody looked kind of shocked and something was going on. So I thought, well, not too bad. 
So I got back on the motorcycle and I continued to ride. And when I passed Hagley Park and there were enormous piles of liquefaction sand coming up in the grass there, I knew something was afoot. And then I got back to the apartment complex and everybody in the complex was standing in the central collection area where the tennis court and the parking and everything was. They were in party mode. They had beers out there and they were all thinking, well, what a great what a great day. We'll come out and have a beer and pretty soon we'll go back up to our apartments. They offered me a beer. Have a beer, mate. I said, well, I think I'd like to find out what's going on here first before we start partying. And uh, the building manager, his name was Keith, is a good friend of mine. And, you know, after a few minutes of hanging out there, he said, you know, I don't think we're going to be going back up to our apartments like a lot of these people think. He said, you come along, I'll show you some stuff. So we went down into the parking garage underground, and there's enormous concrete columns that are supporting as much as 10 stories above. And these columns have water just gushing up from around them, just gushing up. And the, the underground parking was already about 10 centimeters deep in water. And I own a second motorcycle from the one I was riding, and it had been flung on its side, and the handlebars were bent. I could see that. Then we went back up to the ground level and went into the building A of the complex. There were five buildings there, but the building A, we went in on the ground level, and um, he showed me an internal supporting wall that was holding the six stories above, and the concrete was completely shattered off of the rebar. Rebar are those long poles of steel that they sort of wire together in a pattern, and then they pour concrete around it, and the whole mixture is really strong. Seeing all the concrete shattered off of the rebar was a pretty amazing thing. And it was bent and twisted from the weight of what was above it. And he said, I don't think we're going to be moving into our apartments here anytime soon. So I went up and began to collect my passport, um, my most essential papers. I grabbed the main unit of my computer off of the desk and brought all this stuff down and strapped it onto the back of my motorcycle. And in the meantime, I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my partner, Colette. She works maybe four blocks away, and I hadn't heard anything from her yet. And the mobile system in the city was in the process of having a huge meltdown from damage and from overloading, but I did manage to get a hold of her. We had agreed that I'd come over to her place as soon as, as I could. And so I drove my motorcycle over to her place with my computer and various small things strapped on the back. The whole city was just, it, it was like uh, an anthill that had been kicked. People were everywhere, and whenever you looked at the people gathered around you, everybody looked like they were extras in a zombie movie or something. Everybody had that same sort of a stunned, oh, I can't believe what just happened. Everybody looked that way. And traffic was in a gridlock. The street lights were down. The best I could do was uh, I found an ambulance that was heading the direction I was going. So I pulled in behind it with my motorcycle and followed for a long way, which made me get through a little bit quicker. At that point, I hadn't even seen the worst. The path I took between my apartment and Colette's place did not take me through the central downtown. I had no idea that entire buildings had collapsed there. And at her place, we checked her house out. Everything was okay. Her son came over. We all visited for a bit. There was another major aftershock, and that lamp out there that's right over the dining table fell and smashed on the table while we were all gathered 
around the room holding onto the doorways watching everything move. She had also said uh, at that point that, you know, put your stuff in the garage and you could stay for a week or so until you figure out which way's up. They decided Dennis would walk back to his apartment to get a second motorbike and that Colette would follow later in her car to take more of his stuff back to her garage. I walked back to the apartment, saw amazing things along the way like helicopters landing in Hagley Park and all the patients in the hospital on their gurneys outside the hospital. Uh, the statue of some famous fellow in front of the museum had fallen off and smashed his head into the concrete. I mean, everywhere you looked, it was just amazing things to see. Back at the apartment, it was like the four horsemen of the apocalypse had visited. The building itself had all the power off. The only thing that was happening were the emergency alarms, which were just screaming over and over again as if nobody knew that there had been <laughs> an earthquake. And they just went on and on for hours and hours. So to get to the fifth level, you had to go through uh, an emergency staircase. The elevators weren't running, and so you climbed up through all of that. And then when you got to the actual hallway where my apartment was, you could feel that the concrete under the rug was very irregular, and that was because near the door of my apartment, an enormous column, vertical column that supported the building's weight, had been slammed upward by the force of the quake, and it had ruptured the concrete floor around it. When you walked into the apartment, the bookcases were just completely tossed. Books were all across the room. All the cupboards and drawers were flung open. Things flung out of the refrigerator on the floor. Jars and cans and glasses, some of them were broken. Couldn't even tell you what I collected. I just looked around, and if something looked like it was high priority to me, it went into a box. I kept loading things into boxes until I thought I had about as much would go into Colette's little car. Probably during the time that afternoon as I was packing, there were maybe two good aftershocks, maybe three. I was thinking, I'm five floors up. There's nowhere to run. So I'm either going to stand here and wait for this thing to be over, or I'm going to stand here and the building's going to collapse. There's, there are no other options. It was like, Stuff needs to be gotten out of here, and I'm going to get it organized and get it out of here. You know, it is what it is kind of a thing. Dennis suspected the building he called home was so badly damaged, it would soon be condemned. If they're damaged badly enough, those buildings will be taken down, as the authorities say, with prejudice. There's no going in and getting your family album. The whole building is going to be disassembled on the spot, everything in it, no go. And it was a real possibility in my mind that our buildings would be that way and I may never see anything in here again after they red sticker it. And with each passing hour Central Christchurch was being systematically shut down. A cordon made it almost impossible to get in. They finally managed to get Colette's car through and load it up although Dennis's books being so numerous and so heavy still hadn't made it out. That night the aftershocks continued to come, thick and fast. That first night here in her house, we laid there in her bed, and there would be a sound as if a train was coming. No vibration yet, but just the sound of a train coming. And then the house would begin to shake. And it would go on for 10 seconds, and then it would go away. And you just, just laid there, 
and they would come one after the other you know sometimes frequently sometimes with 40 minutes in between big ones small ones it was a lot of rumbling and it was hard to sleep and you know the emotion of everything was just still really in your face and raw like you know I was just like I was trying to absorb the fact that my apartment was destroyed and I was essentially homeless except that she had said you can come and stay here for a week and that's that's a lot to absorb <clears throat> at some point I was on my knees and said to her <clears throat> I'm not gonna let this break me it was quite a powerful emotion because so many things had happened The next day, they returned to the apartment, but it was a short-lived mission. The police came in the afternoon, they red-stickered the place, they said, you know, in 30 minutes when we put the red-stickers on the gate, you're out of here, you'll break the law to come in. Instead, they rode around the city on a motorbike, trying to get the measure of what had happened. We rode various places around the city, talked to friends of mine. One fellow down in Sumner had been pulling people alive and dead out of buildings that had been crushed by the cliff face collapse down there. We just drove around and the whole place was like being in a war zone. It was a surreal kind of a chaos, just weaving your way through trash and damaged buildings and all kinds of stuff. The randomness, I think, is what occurred to me. I mean, it's more a matter of luck about where you were. People were in buses doing nothing more innocent than just riding a bus down the street, and the next second, the wall collapsed and everybody in the bus, except for one person, was killed. It was just a matter of luck. During that time, to distract themselves from the carnage that surrounded them, they began circling around one topic of conversation. Should I get my books out? How can I get my books out? How can we go about getting my books out? Because I really wanted my books. I truly believed that that building would be taken down with prejudice, and I wasn't willing to accept that. But there were military patrols to keep people out of harm's way and to prevent looting. We could see that the cordon was coming together and getting more efficient, and you know. But we kept talking about it and trying to come up with plans. And so it was that five days after the quake, Dennis found himself hiding in Hagley Park in the dead of night, about to launch a well-thought-out plan of action to steal his own books from his own apartment, right under the nose of a military blockade. I dressed in black. I had a black athletic bag and I had stuffed into it those cloth bags that you get at the supermarket. I took along an extra pair of tennis shoes and there was no light in the park itself so it was completely black in there. I crept up at that point to try to reconnoiter what was going on. I basically knew that at some point I had to come out of the park, cross the Avon River, cross Park Terrace to get into the building to do what I wanted to do but there were military patrols. There were three soldiers stationed on the little walking bridge. So I snuck up on those three guys behind a utility shed where they couldn't see me. I just wanted to listen to them and see if they were active and alert or if they were just kind of relaxed and not paying attention. And they were just three young guys chatting about what 20-year-old guys chat about. I walked back into the darkness again and came down to the river and found a location 
where there were a lot of huge trees that had fallen over and they were all quite close to the edge of the river. So I stopped there and I began to watch and I stayed for about two hours. And I just watched to see how frequently the military patrols went up and down Park Terrace, long enough to see that nobody was patrolling on this side of the river, long enough to get the sense that the three guys down on the bridge to my left were kind of relaxed. And after watching for a long time, I thought, well, this is probably enough. I should probably cross. But right about then, my cell phone, which I'd turned the sound off, but it was still on vibrate mode, started making a buzzing that sounded to me like everybody from here to Amberley could hear it. It was enormous. I thought, oh my God. So I pulled my phone out, and it was Colette, and she wanted to know if I'd gotten in yet. And I said, nope, but I'm going now. So there was no way around it. The difficult part was not to get across the river, because it's only 30 centimeters deep, but to get up across Park Terrace, because it was still lit, the street lights were still on, and as I said, patrols were infrequently running up and down. So I pulled my pant legs up, waded through the river, got to the other side, took off those tennis shoes, hung them on the outside of my bag, and put on my dry tennis shoes, and I was in reeds then, so I was hidden down in the reeds by the side of the river. And then I could see the soldiers on the bridge couldn't see me making the crossing because there were intervening trees. But now it was time to get up out of the other side of the river and walk across Park Terrace in the light. And there was no way around it. It was going to be a matter of luck. So I just stood up and put my bag on my shoulder and walked casually across there like I had every right in the world to be there. Meanwhile, I'm going, somebody's going to see me, somebody's going to see me, but nobody did because I was just walking across there like I had the right to be there. The soldiers down at the bridge, if they had just turned the right way, would have seen me. And I got across to the other side and nobody raised an alarm, so I really breathed a sigh of relief about that. And at that point, the hardest part of the crossing was done. Just a couple of minutes later, he was outside the apartment complex. There was the smell of concrete dust everywhere. The complex, of course, was dark. The emergency alarms had been turned off, so it was all just looming black shapes. And I found the, um, the emergency stairwell door was still accessible. And I went up, <clears throat> went into the apartment, which I still unlocked with my key, <laughs> which seemed rather bizarre. <laughs> and uh, once I got into the apartment, the apartment had nothing but the light reflected up from the street lights, and uh, it had a kind of an eerie look about it. The bridge with the three soldiers sat immediately outside my apartment, five levels down, which meant that if they just looked up at the building, which is filling their whole sky, they would have seen me if I had, say, walked out on the balcony. So I went over there and I very slowly slid the drapes shut, slowly enough so that it wouldn't catch anybody's eye. And then uh, I began to go to work with a flashlight, looking through my books, and put the ones that I knew I wanted in the bag, the ones I wasn't sure, in another pile, the ones I didn't want at all, over someplace else. And when I got the 12 bags full, I looked at what was left, and I said, I can live with that. And that took probably about two hours. When I had filled up the 12 bags of books, I had to get the books downstairs, five levels, so up and down the stairwell I went. So it was six trips up and down. My legs were aching after that. 
So now all the bags of books are in the bottom of the stairwell, and I went up one more time for a last look around. And I had one of those indoor-outdoor thermometers, um, and I'd already grabbed the indoor part of it, but the outside part was hanging on the railing outside the doors. I slowly opened the drapes, and then I very slowly opened the glass door so that nothing moved quickly and caught anybody's eye. And then I went out onto the balcony on my hands and knees to stay below the visibility of the soldiers, and I reached up under the railing and I got the outside thermometer and slowly backed my way through all of that, shut the door and the drapes very, very carefully, and then I went downstairs for the last time. I might have locked the door, I don't remember. <laughs> of course, once Dennis had the books out of the apartment, there was the problem of how to get them out of the red zone. He hid them in some bushes. And of course, somebody might think, well, why did you do all of that to get your books out of there if you're just going to go hide them in the bushes. But the fact was, inside a military-controlled red zone at four o'clock in the morning in an area that was off-limits for everybody, there was no way that I was going to get 12 bags of books out and back across the river. It just wasn't possible. But I knew that before I ever started. And that was, again, part of my secret agent, I don't know, whatever it was. I just had this plan, and so I was executing it. So I decided at that point, now that the books were as safe as I could make them, that I needed to go out and get caught. I thought that if I go out and get caught, I at least have a chance of engaging the authorities and seeing if I can talk my way out of it in some fashion where I can get my books out of here, because I don't really have much to lose. And um, so I went out, and I didn't get more than a block before a military patrol came around the corner, and they ordered me to halt, wanted to see my ID, wanted to know what I was doing in the cordoned off area. And I showed him my, I gave him my ID, and then I began to tell my story. And I said, well, I had just gotten back from the West Coast. I'd been on the West Coast and when the earthquake happened, and I was just now able to get back five days later, but on the day of the quake, I had talked to a friend of mine who told me how very, very bad it was in Christchurch, and I said to him, would he go up into my apartment and try to get my books out, because I was really concerned about my books. And he told me later that he got the books out and he carried them in bags downstairs and set them in the bushes outside, but he had to leave then because they were red-stickering everything and chased him off. Well, that's a pretty wild story, but anyway, that's what I told him. And I could tell the whole time I was telling him this, that they were looking at me thinking, this man is lying. He's a looter. There's just no way he's in here with this wild story. He's, he's a looter. So then I said, very politely, I said, well, would you just walk back to the building with me? And I'll show you where the bags are, and you can look in the books. You've got my ID, and virtually every book in the bags has my name in it. They were very skeptical, but they walked me back, and the officer took my ID and went over and looked in the bags of books. And when he turned around and came back, I could tell things had changed. He believed me. And so he came back and he said, well, those are your books. And he said, what do you think, what is it you want to do? And I said, well, the best solution would be if you just simply let me carry my books across the bridge there. Uh, he thought about it, but he said, no, I can't let you do that. My mandate is to either arrest you or eject you if I find you in here. And there's nothing else that I can do. So I'm going to walk you now to the checkpoint and put you out. 
you can come back in daylight at 7 a.m. when we have shift change and see if you can talk to anybody then who will let you come in because the curfew is not quite as tight in the daytime. Dennis was escorted out of the red zone and he went back to Colette's place where they waited for daybreak before returning to the checkpoint. And by luck, the first person I chanced upon to talk to at the checkpoint was a military officer. And he had been briefed in the past half hour by the guy that had caught me last night. And he knew who I was, what I'd been doing in there, and all of it. He said, well, I can't make any promises, but I am willing to walk down to the building with you and see what the situation is. So we started walking down Park Terrace together. And as we walked a little bit more... Two soldiers joined us, so they walked along with us, and now the four of us finally arrive at the building, and sure enough, there's my books in the bags, in the bushes, right where I said. I was pleased they were still there, you know. I mean, I'd been gone for hours. Anything could have happened. Who knows? It still wasn't clear I was going to get my books, but, you know, every step had gotten luckier and luckier. So the officer said, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I would really like to carry these bags of books across that bridge and get on the other side so I'm out of the red zone. And he said, okay, well, come with me. And I was like, come with me? What's this? And we walked over to the bridge where the three soldiers were that I had been spying on. And they were just having their shift change. And he requisitioned two of them to come with us. So now we came back. We had six of us. And each person carrying two bags, we picked them up. And in one go, we walked from the apartment building across the road, across the bridge, and deposited them on the far side, out of the red zone, where Colette was just standing going, Wow. <laughs> and uh, I would thank these guys profusely. Of course, the irony of the fact that two of the guys that helped me carry the books had been the same guys I'd spied on and snuck by the previous night. That was not lost on me at all. So now it's 8 o'clock in the morning. Sun's shining. There's 12 bags of books there. We've all shaken hands and everybody's gone their way. And we've done it. Perhaps not quite done. There was one more challenge. Their car was parked three blocks away, and 12 bags of books, well, they're heavy. And then two guys walked up and they said, oh, what you doing? So I explained what the problem was. They said, oh, we'll help. And before it was all done, we had gathered six people up, and we carried all the bags of books in a group down there, with these people just volunteering out of this blue sky and put all the books in the car and drove back after the long and sleepless night. And it was like, wow. I was just astounded that it all actually came off. The police and the fire and the military, they were all just doing their job. And I didn't want anybody to think that I had been disrespecting them, playing around or anything. You know, I just wanted my books. I didn't want to hurt anybody, but I was not willing to take any prisoners. I wanted my books. Seven years later, the earthquake is still fresh in Dennis's mind, as it is for everyone who was in Christchurch that day. The cloud of concrete dust did, however, have a silver lining. The biggest thing that came out of the quake is, as I said, Colette and I were dating, and she offered me to come here to stay for a week while I got on my feet after the apartment was destroyed. And a week after I'd been here, we began to have these very strange oblique conversations because I thought I'd like to stay on and she thought she'd like me to stay on, but neither one of us were willing to say what we thought until we knew what the other one thought. 
So these very strange conversations ensued where we both tried to figure out what the other one was thinking. Anyway, after days of this, we finally both figured out that we wanted me to stay. And that's turned out to be a godsend because we're still together after all this time. This relationship, I think, is going to last until one of us topples over. And it's an excellent relationship. And it's been good from the beginning. And as for all those books he risked life and limb to save, they take pride of place in the house Dennis now shares with Colette. So here's scientific stuff here, and down there's Japanese stuff, and that's more mystical, spiritual stuff. Most of the ones on the top shelf are philosophical. I've got virtually everything that Herman Hesse ever wrote. The Book Thief. I love that book. I was going to call this episode The Book Thief. Perfect. I think that's a great name. <laughs> that's good, yeah. Dennis's apartment building was deemed to be unsalvageable, and it was one of more than 1,200 buildings demolished in the central city zone after the quake. Before demolition began, however, all the building's residents were given permission to go in and grab their stuff. So, as it turned out, Dennis would have got his books back without the heist. But he wasn't to know that at the time. Last year, when he felt enough time had elapsed, he wrote a great account of his night mission for the August 2017 issue of the country's top current affairs magazine, North and South. And that North and South story can still be found on the website noted.co.nz. Again, that's noted.co.nz. I've also put a link to that North and South story in this episode's show notes on our website, thelitpodcast.kiwi. And if you want to check Dennis out any further, as well as being a book lover, he's also a poet with a blog. You can find his blog at samadisoft.com. That's S-A-M-A-D-H-I-S-O-F-T.com. There's a link to the blog in the show notes at thelippodcast.kiwi. So I think that's it for this episode. Don't forget that if you're liking The Lip, one of the best ways you can help to keep it going is to tell other people about it. So don't be shy to spread the word by sharing on social media or suggesting it to friends and family. I think that's it for me. See you again soon.